welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and I have a really fascinating interview for you today. I am speaking with actor Lee Samuel Tang, who has appeared in 10, count them, 10 Agatha Christie plays over the past 11 years. We'll get into exactly how and why this happened in the interview, but please know that I have a really lovely collage of all 10 of Sam's appearances that I posted on social media. So you can visit the podcast's Twitter slash X account at All About the Dame, and you can also see that up on Instagram at All About Agatha. I also just want to note up top that I will be appearing in Santa Barbara at Chaucer's Books this coming Tuesday, the 20th of February, with my good friend, the extremely talented writer Iris Yamashita. I don't talk about this very often on the podcast, but before I was a writer, I was actually a manager for screenwriters, and Iris was one of my clients. She was in fact nominated for an Academy Award for writing Letters from Iwo Jima, A beautiful movie I'm sure many of you saw. I highly recommend it in case you haven't. Iris has a new thriller out called Village in the Dark. It's a sequel of sorts, or at least a second book in a series featuring the same characters from her thriller novel that came out last year, City Under One Roof. I have read both of them. I absolutely loved them. And I will be talking with Iris about her book, and she will be talking with me about The Busy Body on Tuesday, the 20th of February at 6 p.m. at Chaucer's Books in Santa Barbara. So any Californians who can make it, I really hope to see you there. Click on the link to my website in the show notes for more details. I also just have to mention the book is still a USA Today bestseller three weeks in a row now. So thank you to everyone for your support in buying the book, in coming out to see me at one of these events. I appreciate all of it. And with that, let's go straight to the interview. My guest, Lee Samuel Tang, or Sam, as I will be calling him, is an actor who has been extremely busy in the Southern California regional theater scene for many years now. He's acted at the Long Beach Playhouse Uh, over the last 11 years. He has acted specifically in plays based on Agatha Christie novels at the Long Beach Playhouse. Sam is the only actor who has been fortunate enough to be cast in all 10 of the plays that the Long Beach Playhouse has put on over the last 11 years, all of them based on Agatha Christie novels. This is obviously very exciting to me. I think it is going to be very exciting to many of you. And I'm just going to run down this list of plays right now in the order in which Sam appeared in them. Uh, But don't worry, we will be returning to each and every one of these plays in the course of our conversation. So first there's And Then There Were None, Then Murder on the Nile, The Mousetrap, A Murder is Announced, Black Coffee, Spider's Web, The Unexpected Guest, Murder on the Orient Express, Towards Zero, and The Mysterious Affair at Styles. And those have run from 2013 to 2024, almost every year. I think there was like one or two year gaps in and around there, which is why we have 11 years over 10 titles. But pretty much a Christie each year. And Sam is actually still in the midst of his run of The Mysterious Affair at Styles, in which he is playing none other than our beloved Monsieur Poirot. I also should note that he has done more than Christie 
in his theatrical career. He's actually a 2020 Broadway World nominee for Performer of the Decade. And a couple of his favorite past roles include Puck in A Midsummer Night's Gay Dream, (laughs) Renfield in Dracula, uh, Leonard Gans in Rumors, Juror Number 3 in 12 Angry Jurors, and before The Mysterious Affair at Styles, he was last seen on the Long Beach Playhouse stage as Mr. Dussel in The Diary of Anne Frank. I am so thrilled to be talking to Sam today because as podcast listeners know, when I'm talking about Agatha Christie in the theater, I love being able to talk to people who have actively participated in bringing these works to live stage venues, and Sam has done quite a lot of that over the years. Welcome, Sam. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. Thrilled to have you here. I first just have to ask a pretty general question. I mean, how did you come to be such an active participant in regional theater? Because it's not like this is a flash in the pan. It's not like you've just done a play here and there. This is a a really sustained and continuous activity uh, that you've kept up. And I have to imagine you have a busy schedule Otherwise, you know, regional theater is a slightly different beast from Broadway or the West End. And it's such an important part of how people consume Christie that that I just love to get a sense of how you got involved in regional theater here in the Southern California area. Yeah, absolutely. So I started theater in college. I went to uh, UC Davis and uh, they had a great theater dance department up there. And I did some shows, I did some plays and and dance shows. And when I moved down here, um, I temporarily lived with my parents and I was looking for Southern California community theater. And when I was a kid, I actually, the very first Agatha Christie book I read was, and then there are none. Uh, Back then it was called 10 Little Indians. And I fell in love with with the book. I just couldn't believe how ingenious it was. And, you know, my sisters had all been very well read with Agatha Christie. And um, and so I kind of followed in their footsteps. And so I read Ten Little Indians, fell in love with it. I ended up reading An Appointment with Death was my next one. And then that was it. That was the last Agatha Christie book I ever read. And I'm not sure exactly why I did not keep it up, but I did not. And years later, when I started doing theater, I saw that the Long Beach Playhouse was putting on, and then there were none. Mm. I said to myself, I have to audition for this because (laughs) I need to be a part of it, no matter which character I play. And so I auditioned. The funny thing is I auditioned for the role of Philip Lombard, who I was actually the exact same age of at the time. And when I walked in, the director said to me, you look a little young to be playing Lombard. And so I ended up actually getting cast as Anthony Markston. And I had such a ball on that show that I have so many good feelings about that show. I, you know, I met so many community theater actors for the first time. And somehow I just became involved in that theater. It was a very, uh, Long Beach Playhouse is a really well-oiled machine. They have um, shows year round. Uh, There's a downstairs main stage and there's an upstairs proscenium stage, smaller and that year, you know, they did Agatha Christie. They hadn't planned on doing one every year at that time. And then the year after that, they ended up doing Death Trap. That was the one year that they did not do an Agatha Christie while I was there. Yeah. And I auditioned for that, did not get cast. And then the year after that was Murder on the Nile. And it happened to be the same director as And Then There Were None. And she happened to cast me again. Obviously, at this point, it wasn't like a thing of Sam being in Agatha Christie murder mysteries. There were only (laughs) two at the time. And then the year after that was the mousetrap. And I auditioned and I was offered the role of Paravicini, who he was not even on my radar. I auditioned for Sergeant Trotter. That's the role I really wanted. 
And he offered me Parabuccini and I turned it down stupidly. I know it's like a cardinal sin to turn down a role when you get <laughs> offered one. There are no small roles, right? There, there are, are no small roles. There are small, small roles. But <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, there are, there, you know, yes, there are no small roles, quote unquote. <laughs> and at the time when I turned it down, I, it, it was turning down with the thought that it doesn't mean that you're not in the show. You just don't want that role. Well, I ended up not being in the, sh- uh, not getting cast. And then a week later, the actor who was cast as Christopher Wren, he had to unfortunately drop the show for personal reasons. And so they called me and they said, hey, Sam, would you like to take the role of Christopher Wren? And I was like, yes, <laughs> give it to me. And I ended up loving the role. I, I just kind of fell right in. Um, I mean, you know the character very well. And mm-hmm. um, as we know, he's very queer coded. So it kind of fit right in. And I had so much fun, fun with that role. And then the year after that was a murder is announced. That was another one where I thought I was not cast. They read off the cast list. My name was not uh, spoken. And I said goodbye to everyone. And I walked out into the parking lot and I see this text on my phone from my friend who was cast as the inspector in that. And he said, Sam, come back in. They, you were cast. And huh. I hear the stage manager running out into the parking lot and she's yelling my name. She's like, Sam, we forgot to say your name. <laughs> and, uh, so... I ended up getting cast in that. And I think that's when it started to become maybe a thing that I started to, you know, the year after that was black coffee and they, people were like, are you going to audition for that? I mean, you know, they love you here. They're going to probably cast you. And I was like, no, I mean, I, you know, the last thing that any community theater actor wants to hear is that they were given the role because of anything other than their skill level or their, you know, Mm. you don't want to feel like you, people think you were owed the role. And so I auditioned and I, and I got cast and I actually got cast as the killer, which was my first time being the killer, which was great. And then the year after that was Spider's Web. And, you know, I had, I got cast as the role of, of Henry Halesham Brown, who is just at the beginning and the very end. And yeah. that's it. <laughs> not a good lot. It's true. But, you know, I had a fun time because it was such a great cast, but, you know, it was, you know, I had a little tiny role and I was kind of like, oh, well, you know what? It's Agatha Christie. I don't care. I just want to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, and then the year after that was The Unexpected Guest. And that actually happened to be the last show at the Long Beach Playhouse that had its full run before everything shut down for COVID. Uh, yes, that must have been early 2020. And you were Michael Starkwetter, which is a, I a was. very big role for a lot of different reasons. Yes, probably my biggest role to date in Agatha Christie. And, you know, I was really anxious about it because I was afraid I wouldn't know be able to learn all the lines. And, you know, when you're one of the lead characters and you're on stage, <laughs> you're, you, you kind of, you, you kind of have to depend upon yourself <laughs> um, <laughs> in certain respects. I mean, you've got this whole cast and the ensemble group, but when you've got like a main role, it, there, there are certain things that kind of hinge on your performance. And so I kind of had that pressure, but it went off great. And then we shut down and then we had murder on the Orient express. And I got to play uh, Monsieur Bouc, who that was my first time trying to attempt any semblance of a Belgian accent. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God it didn't have, I wasn't cast as Poirot, so I didn't have to maintain it for the, that many lines. Um, And then it was toward zero. It was the first time I actually got to play the inspector uh, who doesn't actually end up solving the mystery, (laughs) but it was a really, really fun role. And then lastly, is this year Mysterious Affair at Styles. And when I auditioned for this, I put down that I'm auditioning for Mr. Cavendish or or Mr. Hastings. Um, I did not have Poirot on my radar because I don't I didn't think I could ever play him. Uh, he's such an iconic role. And they ended up 
wanting me to read for him. And so I read for him, did my best, and here we are. And so somehow this has become a thing where, you know, we've done Agatha Christie's for the last 11 years, we've done 10 of them. And I don't honestly know how it happened. Like, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have been like, no, this is ridiculous that I'm in all 10. But somehow it's happened. And people have joked with me asking, you have some sort of contract with the Long Beach Playhouse where they have to cast you? And I vehemently say, no, I do not. I, I, I do not have any sort of contract. However, being a community playhouse, the nice thing about it is that you do get to see people repeatedly that you've seen in the past, uh, directors, actors, and directors know who is good to work with, who will do the work um, in putting on a play. And I feel, and I can try and say this without ego, but I feel like I'm a very professional community theater actor. I do the work and I'm very easy to work with. And I think that has helped me quite a bit. So, and I'm also just curious, I mean, I've never been able to ask anyone about this, but I mean, for, for community theater, I assume that, you know, a, a great deal of the people who, who are performing and involved both behind the scenes and on the stage obviously have other careers. I mean, they, they, they might be careers in the theater or just completely separate. I mean, what, what are the logistics like? Like, when do you rehearse? What is the performance schedule? Like, how, how does that work, even specifically at Long Beach Playhouse? Because it really is a very robust community theater it has quite a presence in this area i mean i'm I, you know i live pretty far north of you but like i've heard of it <laughs> so i feel like you're just in a really good position i think to answer that question absolutely all the actors are volunteers uh the only people that get paid uh doing a show are the director the stage manager and the designers mm-hmm. and it's it's really not that much pay definitely not enough to live on um and so all of us have our own careers. I, I, by day, I'm a veterinary technician. I work in emergency and critical care and I work full time. And so the nice thing about most community theaters is that all rehearsals are in the evenings and you usually don't rehearse more than four, maybe five times tops a week. Uh, if there's musicals, sometimes I rehearse six days a week, but you know, it's, that's very rare. Right. Uh, you got to work within people's schedules and you got to remember that they're not getting paid. <laughs> so right. usually rehearsals are about three hours in the evening and we do about maybe three weekday evenings. And then on the weekend of maybe one weekend day, like from mm-hmm. nine to 12. And so you get about maybe 13 hours of rehearsal a week and you rehearse for about maybe five weeks or so before you open. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you know, certain dates where you got to be off book. You can't have the script in your hand by the end of week two or week, week three. And then yep. the end of week four, you're not allowed to call for a line. If you forget your line, you just got to find your way out of it, you know? Yeah. And so there's that added pressure, but that pressure is really what makes you do the work. When I got cast as, as Poirot for Mysterious Affair at Styles, I it was excited, but I was terrified, absolutely terrified um, because he has a shit ton of lines. So many lines. So many lines. And, and so people have asked me, how did you, you know, memorize all these lines? And it was basically fear, (laughs) fear of letting down my fellow cast members or the director and wanting to do a really good job because this is, you know, again, this was a role that I was not expecting to get cast in. And I wanted to show people that I could do it. Most of all, I wanted to show myself because I probably had less faith in me than anyone else. And the fact that I was able to pull this off with the, you know, the grace of my fellow cast members and my director, is this a testament to the, the beauty of community theater? Everyone's working together to get this show formed. And 
audience ready and we, we're all there just to entertain and 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 you know make people laugh make people cry make people gasp you know whatever the show that you're you're wanting to do that's what's so great about it. I mean, yeah, everyone is there out of passion, right? And it, Absolutely. It's not for money. It's not even really for, for fame, right? Because you're doing this in a, in a community venue and like, you know, obviously who knows where, what anything can lead to, but it, you know, it truly is for love of the material and love of the experience of putting these shows on and entertaining people and being in that moment, right? I mean, there's nothing, especially for live theater, it's just like, there's nothing like live theater, both as an audience member and as someone who performs it. I mean, I even remember it from being in high school and I even do, did a little bit of it in college as well. There's just like a very particular rush to it and this feeling of togetherness, like this connection that you get with, you know, your fellow actors or, or you know, the other, the other people who are putting together the show and then also the audience. And it's, um, it's really magical. I mean, it's, Absolutely. I, I, I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. One of the directors that I work with uh, frequently, he says that the, the, you know, the last character in a play is the audience. And mm -hmm. the audience is such a huge part. I will say for any uh, show that you put on there, especially Agatha Christie, you've got to get the audience within the first five to 10, maybe within the first five minutes, either laughing or gasping. Because mm. that's going to define how the rest of the show is going to be. Once several audience members laugh or gasp, it kind of gives allowance for the rest of them to react vocally. And those vocal interactions with the audience uh, or, or what we get from them, they give us so much energy as actors on stage. Just knowing that they're engaged, it kind of turns up your performance. And I know that as a professional or as a community theater actor, you want to, you want to say, like, oh, I'm going to put on a great show no matter what. But... Really, the audience's response is so important to at least people my, like me. I love to hear their gasp. I love to hear their laughs. It just gives me so much energy. And it's not as if I wouldn't be putting it there purposely if I didn't hear it, if I wouldn't be doing the same performance. But it kind of gives you that extra oomph that is like, hey, you know what? I'm here to, to entertain and to entertain them and, and I'm going to do it. And, you know, no matter what. And it also, also actually relaxes you a bit because when the audience is silent you start to your mind starts to play tricks on you like oh, am i doing a bad job am i mm -hmm. the first night of performance for mysterious affair at styles it was the pay what you can night where you invite whoever you want they don't have to pay anything and they just come and we kind of call it the last dress rehearsal hmm. and oh. when we we're performing the, the audience was kind of silent they were a little bit smaller audience but they were you know a little quiet and for the first half I could not get the stupid thing out of my head that the audience was distracted with my accent. That was, was popping in my head. The audience was distracted with my accent and I couldn't get that out of my head. And then for the second half of the show, you know, I have a lot of lines where I'm just explaining what happened. And I started to really hate the sound of my voice while I was on stage. Hmm. And that was a horrible place to be emotionally. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just wanted it to end. And, you know, after the show, everyone kind of felt like it went pretty well. And I said, you know, well, I just have to trust that because in my mind, I, I hated what happened. <laughs> God, it's so, it, I mean, of course that happens. And when you're acting and you know your lines so well and you've done it so many times, it's just so crazy to think that you're up there acting in the same space as all these people having this whole internal monologue with yourself as yeah. you're 
going through, you know, but of course that's happening. I mean, we all, we all have our internal monologue that we can keep, keep going simultaneous with our daily lives. It's just that, you know, in that moment, your daily life in, involves performing in front of like hundreds of people. That's really funny. Well, and, and I love, I love the fact, I mean, I, I you answered my question because I was going to ask you about those gaps, but there really aren't any, I mean, the first gap, like you said, that was death trap, which a lot of people point to as like one of their favorite uh, mm-hmm. mystery plays. Mm-hmm. It's very, very Christie-esque. I mean, very much in the same tradition. And then of course, the second gap was due to COVID. So I have to ask them before we talk a little bit more about the plays that you actually did do. I mean, of course, where my head went as a Christie fan and one who knows about all of the plays that Christie wrote, which is a lot more than the plays of Christie's that actually get performed. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, what else are they going to do? It seems that they seem to be on this kick of doing Agatha Christie. There's a very obvious, I mean, there's one glaring omission here right, among right. the Christie crown jewels that you haven't done yet. That would yes. be witness for the prosecution. For prosecution. Yes. Is that is that on the roster? Is it is is it in the works? So that <laughs> is something know? that I it's really funny that you brought that up because um I recently, in the last couple of years, went on to be on the show committee at Long Beach Playhouse, which means that we sort of try and decide which shows we would like to put on there for the season. And then whatever shows we like, we'll bring it to the board and they have to approve it. And so I have brought up Witness for the Prosecution as a possibility. And for some reason, it hasn't gotten the... I think the fear is that it's just sort of like a courtroom drama and Mm. as exciting... I think a courtroom drama is fine. What I do worry about is a little twist, whether that could be pulled off with the disguise. Mm-hmm. And because I remember seeing this, seeing the show at a d- different community theater and the the twist was glaringly obvious. Ooh, and so, good. It, right. And so it really has to be done really well because if it's not, then it kind of, you know, it, it almost taints the whole thing. <laughs> it's true. Well, it's one of those, I mean, it's where the Christie costuming clues work so well on the page, but right. it's it's the risk that you also take in film adaptation. But in film, it's like you get a chance to obviously look back at it and then correct it if it's not right. if it's not working. Like, oh, we need this to be a little darker. Or like the right. angle's got to be a little bit more oblique. I was talking about this a little bit, actually, in my last gargantuan episode about the mousetrap with with Scott Ratner, another theater and Agatha Christie enthusiast oh, yeah, in the area. I'm not surprised. It actually would have shocked me if you didn't. Um, <laughs> he, you know, we, we talked about the high risk, high reward of these sorts of high concepts or, you know, the the puzzles that rely on one trick instead of several tricks, wow. um, as many of Christie's puzzles do. And witness for the prosecution, I mean, in, in terms of solving it, that's definitely, if that's not working, it's easily solvable and then that would be very deflating. I understand that, but boy, if it works, that ending is like no yeah. other. It's so oh, yeah, it, it's it's huge. It's it's huge. And so I don't know how long they're going to continue this Agatha Christie streak. The thing about Agatha Christie is, especially for community theater, she brings in the people. She brings in the audience. Yep. I mean, I know that this is something that you spoke about in your theater episode, but there's this phenomenon with Agatha Christie where even the plays that are not well written are still going to bring in people. Yeah. And like when I was trying to go down with the, the ranking from the shows that I was in, you know, the first criteria I had was writing and the lowest I, w- I actually, I, I ranked it from one to 10 and the lowest I did was four, but even that one brought in so many people. And the, the thing about Agatha Christie in theater is that because it's live audience members, you know, you're, they're not reading a book. They don't have time to 
a chance to go back and review things. Everything is just in the moment. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't understand exactly how it was done or why it was done or remember any names that they may mention, people that are not even characters, main characters in the, in the play, you know, people that were in the past, it can be very difficult to understand. However, as long as the audience is entertained, as long as you make them laugh, as long as you still make it a whodunit and the person who done it is one of the people on stage, that's all they need. They yeah. really don't need a full understanding of what happened because your average theater goer is not going to be an Agatha Christie scholar. And we, were, we talk about it a lot in almost every Agatha Christie play that I do. As a cast, um, we, we, we discuss how, you know, sometimes it's not until even their second performance when we realize, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> you know, it just for example, in the mysterious affair at Styles, which we're doing right now, one of the things that Barrow sees is a stain of coffee on Mrs. Inglethorpe's floor in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. And because of that stain of coffee there, he deduces that she didn't have any coffee. You know, there's no possibility that she could have drank some and then spilled it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what his deduction is that she didn't have any of it, which is a big part of a little bit of the explanation. And so still little little plot holes like that are little things that, you know, when you sit and think about it, you're like, you know, that doesn't really make much sense. But when an audience is watching, they don't care. They really do not care. They're going right. to take whatever explanation that Barrow or Marple gives, that's going to be what happened. And, you know, if they end up guessing who the killer was, they're going to love it. And if they end up being fooled, then they're going to love it even more. And they're going to want to bring their friends to come see it. And, you know, honestly, that's, I feel like that, that's, that's Agatha Christie's big draw. It's, it's, it's a whodunit. It's getting tricked or showing how smart you are. You know, that mousetrap phenomenon that you spoke about in the, or that you discussed in the last episode, it really is a, I mean, if you, if you look at my ranking, I honestly did not mean for it to fall where it did, where mousetrap did, but that's what happened with my subjective objective as much as I could, you know, ranking. There is something about it, even that silly little statement that the audience sometimes recites at the end of each show. It's like a, a dare to bring your friends or to see it or to see it again or and, and see, it, see it with your friends and see if they can guess. You know, there's, there's a huge attraction to it that you can't deny. No, absolutely. And that actually puts me in mind of, I mean, I've talked about this on a number of episodes previously, and I I believe I was also talking about it with Scott in the last episode, you know, the, the lack of narrative control that you have in a live theater, it's like, it's very hard to direct an audience's attention to something in an investigative way, which is obviously crucial in a puzzle mystery when, you know, an investigator, like you want to be able to say, okay, well, here's something that's important. Like you you need to know this to get to the solution. You want to layer in those clues deftly, obviously, so that it doesn't become obvious, but you also want them to be memorable so that Mm -hmm. when you get to the solution, the reader goes, Oh my God, I can't believe I didn't realize that I was given all the information and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and you did it again, Agatha Christie. And she's so good at doing that in novel form. And there, and it's so easy to recreate that narrative control in film form but then it really is so difficult to recreate it in a live theater because the audience is sitting there and they can look at whatever they want. They can listen to whatever they want. But I think the flip side of that, like you're saying is 
that everything is in the moment. So you can't flip the pages back and look and right. look it up and you can almost get away with more, <laughs> which is interesting. Absolutely. And there, and, but there is that viscerality of just like being in the same physical space as the people who are also creating the story and putting on the show. So that's really interesting. I mean, I have to, I have to say, so witness for the prosecution is the obvious next one that you can do, but I have a list, Sam. So after that, I would say if, you know, you were going to go through what are the Agatha Christie plays that Long Beach Playhouse still has yet to do, there are actually a couple. And I think especially if there's, you know, some trepidation about witness or the prosecution. The Hollow is a Christie play that a lot of theater and Christie enthusiasts point to as one of her very best, which is very much in keeping, I think, with a lot of the plays that you've already put on at Long Beach Playhouse. I feel like you guys are are ripe for a production of The Hollow. <laughs> yeah, that is a show I know. I haven't, I have not seen it, but I have a friend who was in it. And that is something that I might suggest. The other is, isn't there a recent adaptation of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd? There is a recent, yes, which I, I spoke about with the writer-director, Mark Shanahan, who yes. he's the one yeah. who adapted it. There's, I, I did a previous episode with him. They put it on at the Alley Theater in Houston. And then I think he's figuring out, it seems to be making a bit of a regional run in various places. And I know they're trying to figure out where it's going to go next, but absolutely. I think the murder of Roger Ackroyd, there is also appointment with death, which you already referenced as a novel, but Christie adapted that herself. It's an early Christie adaptation. And then as I understand, it's not the best adaptation. It's not like the hollow, which is is kind of a, a you know lesser sung, but like very much a fan favorite. It does have, though, it's famous for the fact that its solution differs from the solution in the novel. And oh, according to many people, perhaps me is maybe a better solution. So it's it, there's a lot going on there. it's It's very, very interesting. And then go back for murder is her adaptation of Five Little Pigs, which most people do not like. Um, <laughs> so that one <laughs> that one really didn't work. Um, as you can see, I'm kind of going as I go down my list here, it's getting like you know less and less um, <laughs> appealing, <laughs> appealing. Yeah. She also has a play called The Stranger, which is her adaptation of the short story Philomel Cottage. Most people know that better as Love from a Stranger, which was a play that was adapted by Frank Vosper off of her short story. And that very famously became a movie starring Basil Rathbone that I actually covered on a Patreon episode recently. And I'm going to mm -hmm. do, you'll appreciate this, I'm going to do an episode in the coming months that compares Agatha Christie's adaptation of Philomel Cottage, her play script, The Stranger, that compares that directly to Love from a Stranger to see what Christie did versus what someone else did when they were adapting oh, okay. her material for the stage. And then she also has Chimneys, which was her adaptation of The Secret of Chimneys, which is a bit of a, you know, madcap. Technically, it's a murder mystery, but that one might also be a bit of a good fit. I just want this run to continue. I just think it's so great that you... Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean at, at some point, it's going to fit. At some point... It <laughs> You know, it's got to end, but it's a great run. I, I you know, hearing you, uh, I heard your promo for this episode on the last episode. And when you said that I had been in 10, hearing it out loud just sounds ridiculous. To me. <laughs> um, it, like, I've, I can't believe I've done 10 Agatha Christie murder mysteries. I would like to know if there's any other community theater actor in the L.A. area that has done 10 Agatha Christie's. It seems just silly to me almost. But also, it's something that for which I'm very proud. I don't, I don't know how long this run's going to be, but you know, as long as they keep on casting me, I will continue to accept role. 
Well, if it goes long enough that you can kind of just, you know, like lap a generation and then just start back at the beginning again. Right. Like, I mean, that's very true. I, at know, this point, 2013 is is a while ago. So just do, you know, five or six more and then just go right back to the beginning. <laughs> um, I mean, and then they're going to be separated by a decade each time. And the first time I was Anthony Marston, maybe next I could be Blore. And lastly, I could be Wargrave, you know? Exactly. Yeah, you just have to, yeah, you have to cycle through the cast. You'll play every role in every episode <laughs> you play. That's your, ne- that's your next goal, Sam. I mean, and, and it's funny too that you also say in the LA area, because I mean, this is so anecdotal, so I really have nothing to, to base it on. But <laughs> it does feel like there's a lot of Agatha Christie being produced in the Southern California area in particular, like it's just really active. It feels extremely active. And I know there are other parts of the country where it's really active too. And maybe, I mean, we both live here. uh, So maybe I'm just more attuned to it, but it's just interesting. I mean, I, I love it. And you, you just wouldn't necessarily think that Southern California would be such a hotbed. Right. Well, regional Agatha Christie. I I would say I'm guessing that the rights are not too difficult to get for Agatha Christie's, which is probably one thing. And then the other is that, especially post-COVID, where theaters are really trying to recover, especially small community theaters, Agatha Christie's kind of a sure bet. And you've got to keep the lights on somehow. And people love her shows. So, you know. Yeah. Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming You've already referenced the the fact that you did some ranking here, Sam, and and mm-hmm. I and, and we're going to get to your ranking project in a second of all the Agatha Christie plays you've been in. I just I wanted to cover one other point before we do, uh, which is something that people don't talk about enough when we're talking about Agatha Christie in the theater. So I've always been a bit of a stickler for this, but we do need to differentiate between plays that Agatha Christie adapted herself for the stage from her novels versus plays that other people adapted from Agatha Christie's novels and yours break down almost evenly. You've actually got six that are written by Christie and then four of the 10 that are written by other people. So you're um, going to have to remind me which ones were written by her. I'm going to no, absolutely. And I don't, I don't blame you for not knowing off the top of your head, because honestly these plays, because Agatha Christie is such a draw and people want to bring, you know, you want to get butts in seats. These plays are always marketed and spoken about as Agatha Christie place. Like that's just it. It's just, it's an Agatha Christie place. So there's never no one, there's really no interest, (laughs) I think in, in separating them out. But from, a scholarly point of view, it's, I think it's it's crucial that we do that. So there are unauthorized versions or just alternate versions that are done. Sure. But my best guess is that 
And then there were none is the version that is written by Agatha Christie. So that's an original Agatha Christie play adapted, obviously, from her novel. Murder on the Nile is Agatha Christie's. That's her adaptation of Death on the Nile. The Mousetrap, of course, is an an original Agatha Christie play based on her radio play. Black Coffee um, is the first of uh, the next three, which are all original Agatha Christie plays that aren't adaptations. Uh, So that was her first play that she wrote. And the only play, the only original play to feature Borrow, of course. Right. Then we have Spider's Web, which is also an original Agatha Christie play. Uh, there was originally a, a vehicle for Margaret Lockwood <laughs> in the in the 50s. And actually oh. one of one of my very favorites. I really love Spider's Web. And um, The Unexpected Guest, which was also a an original play of hers that she put out very quickly after Verdict, which was one of her box office bombs in the theater, one of her few bombs, wow. because that one is not a murder mystery play. It's pretty much a straight drama. But for a play called Verdict by Agatha Christie, the expectation was very much, you know, we are going to be watching something that's like Witness for the Prosecution or The Mousetrap. And it right. was not. And people were very <laughs> upset about that. So ah. she followed that up with The Unexpected Guest, which is really very classic Christie. It's Christie on her home turf. And it's great. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. even though it has some depictions stuck in their time, uh, it has issues there. But other than that, it, it is a really great original Christie. Um, and then uh, there were four that were written by other people. So the first is Toward Zero. And it's funny because Christie wrote her own version of Toward Zero early on. She wrote it in, I believe, 1945. But then there was there was a version that was adapted by Gerald Verner, Kind of, sort of, with Agatha Christie's help. Julie Screen talks at great length about this in his book, Curtain Up, Agatha Christie, A Life in the Theater. It's very unclear how much she had to do with it. It seems like maybe actually not that much. I didn't have to ask you which version you did. Uh, I was almost sure that you were doing the Gerald Werner version because that's the one that gets adapted much more frequently. And I knew for sure because in Agatha Christie's version, Superintendent Battle is not a character. And uh-huh. you play Superintendent Battle. So I was like, okay, so he did the, that's the Gerald Werner version. Then there's A Murder is Announced. That was actually adapted by Leslie Darbin in 1977 and first presented by Peter Saunders. So even though it's not written by Agatha Christie, that one feels like it came out of the the world of Agatha Christie or the extended world yeah. of Agatha Christie. It's been around for a long time, too. And then Murder on the Orient Express, this is a new adaptation that has been very, very popular, actually. That one I know a lot of people, including Christy Diehards, have been really enjoying that adaptation. And then I was not, uh, I did not even know that there was a theatrical adaptation of The Mysterious Affair at Styles until you contacted me, Sam. So I'm not <laughs> familiar with this one at all. I know for sure Christy didn't write it, but I assume that this is a more recent adaptation. Yes, T. James Bellick. I mean, I think like what like all Agatha Christie adaptations, whether she did it or not, there are certain things that seem to go along with most of her scripts, whether she adapted it or not. And that's just that there's a lot of exposition at the beginning. And the the adaptation by Ken Ludwig of Murder on the Orient Express, I would have to say that was a great adaptation. Mainly for me, it was because it's short. It's a very short script. It's, it goes by really fast. There's not much exposition. It is not much like just talking, talking, talking. There's just a lot of stuff happening. And it moves along on a really nice pace. And I think that might be part of the draw of it is that it's kind of an exciting murder mystery. Like it takes place on a, on a train, which actually makes it a little bit downgraded with the stageability because it is a little bit difficult to stage. Mm, um, yeah. You have a little bit of creativity. You know, the main 
places are the station, the train itself, and then the sleeping compartments. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've, you've never been to the Long Beach Playhouse, but the main stage is like a thrust stage. It's a, a very deep thrust. There's audience on three sides. Uh, I see. It's it um, kind of thrust out into the audience. It's like sticking correct. out. Got it. Yes. And so it's almost like a little bit like a wide bowling alley almost. And so mm-hmm. uh, you have to be a little bit creative and you have to be for the people who are sitting at the down end. If you're not careful, stuff that's happening way upstage is not really audible to the audience. You got to really make sure that, that you're projecting and that whoever's directing, they got to direct things moving at, back and forth. And so it's a tricky stage to stage anything on, but it's also really great because for an actor, it's difficult to upstage yourself because you have audience on three sides of you. Right. Upstage and turning your back to the audience. So yeah, uh, so Murder on the Orient Express is a great script. Uh, you just got to be a little bit creative with the staging. Yeah, no, and then I, I think that's, you know, I, I don't want to say a universal reaction to it, but that's a pretty common reaction to that script. I mean, it's gotten really great response. It does have some departures. I mean, the, you know, some eyebrow-raising departures from from the text, but it feels, you can sort of tell that it was made in the shadow of the Kenneth Branagh movie because mm-hmm. it's very cinematic and there's mm-hmm. there's propulsion to it, though. It, it's great. I mean, to me, it's a perfect example of why I never want to become the crotchety Agatha Christie enthusiast who, you know, gets angry at departures. I'm just like, this is a great like addition to, you know, the canon of plays that are out there to use to introduce people to Agatha Christie. I think it's, you know, it provides a great night of theater and, you know, I bet it would inspire a lot of people either to read the book or maybe like to read the book in preparation or just it, it increases awareness of Christie. Like it's just, it's, it's a great thing. So yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's get to, so Sam having appeared in 10 Agatha Christie plays, you know, as someone who's a big sucker for a ranked list, it was basically irresistible to me not to ask Sam to rank (laughs) his 10 appearances in order from least to most favorite for these 10 plays. So basically I gave Sam some homework to do before this interview and he really followed through because he even has a methodology here for how he did his ranking. It's not like he just kind of sorted the 10 titles with some sort of like vague feeling of which one he liked more or less. So Sam, tell us how you came up with this ranking and then take us through your rankings from 10 to 1 of these 10 Agatha Christie plays in which you appeared. Okay, so the criteria that I decided on was the first one was writing. And when I when I say writing, I mean, does it make sense? Does it flow? Does it, does it have a nice pace to it? Or does it kind of drag? Things like that. And all these criteria I ranked from 1 to 10. So Writing was the first one. The second criteria was stageability. How easy is it is it the stage? Does the does the play take place in one room where it's nice and easy, or are there multiple locations such as like Murder mm. on Point Express? Uh, the next criteria was reception, meaning how do I remember the audience receiving this? Now you have to remember that a lot of these plays I haven't remembered the circumstances around them since they were 10 years ago or 11 years ago. (laughs) And so it was just sort of kind of what I remember or just the feeling that I got from how the audience received it. And then lastly, or the last original one was enjoyability, meaning how much did I enjoy working on it? How much did I enjoy, you know, being part of it? And after all that, there ended up being three ties. And I felt I needed to 
add another criteria in order to break those ties. And so um, I added an overall look, basically an overall, how do I feel about this play in general? I don't know exactly how I can more specify that <laughs> than just an overall feeling, an overall vibe. We had um, we had a catch-all category as well, pretty okay. much. I mean, we called setting and tone was somewhat about setting and then readability, but it was also, you know, I, we would call it the ineffable category yeah. where it's like just how you feel. Well, I love, and, and so you, you scored each category from one to 10, right? Like it could get anywhere between one and 10 points and you ended up yeah. with five categories, right? Yes. Very yeah, similar to the all about Agatha rankings, Sam. Oh, it's that's like great. You're creating a ranking system here. <laughs> that, that's awesome. And I would have to say it's the most subjective one, obviously it's the enjoyability. And I think overall, as the plays become more and more in the recent past, my enjoyability gets a little bit higher and it might be because Either I remember it better or my <laughs> role became a little bit bigger as the years went by. And I'll say that whatever one that you, you know, the one that ranks number 10, meaning the, the lowest on the list, it doesn't necessarily mean that I had a bad experience. It, it just meant that it was the lowest on the list. Um, <laughs> all 10 of these were incredibly enjoyable for me. So starting with number 10. Yes. Number 10 with 33 points was Black Coffee. As you said, Black Coffee is the the only play that she wrote that has uh, Hercule Poirot in it, with an exception for the Wasp's Nest. She did this little this little play based on a short story, but that's, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, but it never. No one, no one really does, except for pedants like me. But okay. <laughs> and I think I even said I, I said that incorrectly once, and and I feel like Julius Green either directly corrected me or, or I was corrected by him after I read about Wasp's Nest in in his book. So yeah, yeah, that's my, my little caveat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number nine with 34 points is Murder on the Nile, which is the play adaptation of Death on the Nile. And Sam, who was your character in that? Because I have to admit, because you, you were kind enough to include character names oh, as yes. you did your rundown for me, but that was the one, because all the names are changed in that, yes. I didn't recognize who that character was. So who so was William Smith. I played William Smith, and he was like an amalgam of three different characters, I believe, from the book. So he's one of these sort of the more minor, like young men characters who yeah. provide some romantic intrigue, a little exactly. bit of like... Exactly. Got it. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. exactly it. I was kind of like the foe of Miss Foliot folks. Um, we kind of had a little, you know, banter back and forth. Between, gotcha. You know, I'm kind of like the Anthony Marston, basically of that play and with less vehicular manslaughter though i'm sorry oh yes <laughs> less, less vehicular <laughs> minus the vehicular manslaughter <laughs> no morals or qualms about anything okay uh with 35 points number eight is a murder is announced which is the only miss marple play that i've done and that one i have to say it, i have some really good memories from it but also the script itself i remember that there was a lot of um, especially in the explanation. The explanation was that Miss Marble gives is very, very long-winded. And she starts to bring up names of people in the past that the audience does not even remember or really. Oh, wow. And so that one actually scored lowest on my list for writing. Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. Well, and 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 by the way, not adapted by Agatha Christie. So oh, interesting. There you go. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, that's that's why I mean, I, I was going to ask you about that. That's really interesting. And I think it's funny because Miss Marple in general in the novels, when she solves cases, she usually does not do so by way of physical clues and a logical deductive process like Poirot does. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. using insight. It's sort of this inductive sort of a reasoning. It's all very internal. But for that reason, often the culprit has to be captured in a Miss Marple novel by way of a trap that she springs a culprit like like they're enticed to kill yet again and then she's like literally waiting in the wings i mean in actually a murder is announced she is literally hiding in a broom cupboard at the end of the book and she sort of like springs out and it's a little ridiculous or she comes running upstairs and she's you know sprays someone with soapy water it actually could be quite dramatic but perhaps it's a little difficult to pull off those sorts of traps in live theater. I'm not sure. But, you know, Miss Marple in general is not very well represented on stage. I mean, the uh, there is a yeah. version of um, The Mirror Cracked from side to side that has gotten some play, especially, I believe, in the UK in the last couple of years that many people are big fans of. So maybe that also could be another uh, <laughs> another candidate for your next Agatha Christie play. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I wish that there could be more Miss Marple, but I'm not surprised that you only have one. I'm actually thrilled that you even have <laughs> one Miss Marple right, on this list. Right. And I have to say, I mean, so we're now at the, those are the bottom three, Black Coffee, Murder on the Nile, and A Murder's Announced. I have zero problem with with those being your bottom three. Like, none of those is a play where I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that you don't appreciate this play more. Right. And again, like you said, this is all relatively speaking. You've had so much fun doing all these plays. But like, I think given the 10 plays you've done, that is actually a really solid bottom three. So uh, even though this is all subjective, I'm on board here. So keep on going, Sam. That's great. Okay. So at number seven with 39 points is Spider's Web. And I know that you said this is probably your favorite. Yeah, this is where you leave me. (laughs) Well, you can see there actually is a big leap in score from 35 to 39. Part of the big thing was that I had such a tiny role in this. So Mm. that probably contributed a lot. But the play, I I think I remember you mentioning, um, not today, but in a previous episode, that Spider's Web is a very classic Christie, and it really is. It's it's a very lighthearted, right? The character of, uh, what's her name? Clarissa? Clarissa, yep. She's such a bubbly character, and you really want to root for her. The relationship that she and her husband have is such a, I don't know, like a 50s, it's just very wholesome. (laughs) <laughs> it's wholesome and, and almost sitcom-y, but in, in the best yes. of ways, in that classic 50s sitcom sort of a way. Yeah, and you know, Clarissa is Agatha Christie's middle name, and it's also, I mean, her mother oh. was called Clara, but but it is also basically her mother's name as well. I mean, it was a uh-huh. name that was much beloved by her, like sort of a family name. I, I think it's one of the few plays that captures the lightness that Christie could pull off, that sort of light comedy, which just gets criminally underappreciated in her books, because so many of her books have those moments of lightness in them, even though they're murder mysteries and they have their moments of darkness too. And I think that goes a long way toward why people enjoy Christie as much as they do, because there's never too much of either. Right. And it's a, it's a great example of that. It's probably, it's, it's more on the side of lightness than I think most of her creations, regardless of medium, but it works and it's a murder mystery. And, and, you know, there's, there's a dead body, <laughs> like it, yeah. it, it's all there. <laughs> Not only is there a dead body, but they have to hide the body. Yes. And- which is always really, really entertaining for the audience. I remember when, I think it's this play where one of the characters ends up burying the body or hiding it, planting it under some flowers or something or burying it under some flowers. And it, it, it's like the funniest part of the show or one of the funniest parts of the show because she's so 
matter of fact about what she did to the body. She just mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, I buried it there. I planted nice flowers over it. You know? Yes, <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. We, we, this has come up a bunch, but this is the one that it feels very close to like a Noel Coward sort of yes. sort of a, a play. It has that farcical aspect to it. Yeah. So, well, even though it's ranked seventh, I'm glad that you appreciate it for its brilliance. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, number six, uh, with 40 points, the first one in, in the 40 realm is The Unexpected Guest, uh, where I played Michael Starkweather. This was, uh, as I already mentioned before, the last show that we got to perform before COVID took over. And this was my biggest role to date. I got to play The Unexpected Guest. You were the titular Unexpected Guest, yeah. I was. <laughs> and I had such a really uh, good time on this, but it also was uh, a little, little bit stressful because... I was so stressed about my lines. I, w- I didn't get to enjoy the, the, the creation of it as much because I just had never had that many lines before. So I had a lot of anxiety throughout this whole production. But it ended up being a really fun play to perform. I do remember, um, and this is what happens a lot in live theater, especially in live community theater, someone's cell phone went off. When it went off, it was playing U2, and it was playing it, you know, usually when someone's cell phone goes off, it goes off and then they realize it and they turn it off. Well, this one just kept on going and kept on going. And what I found out later was that the person had no idea that it was them, even though God. it was right in their pocket and it was you too. How many people have you too as their ringtone? And the person that I was on stage with, she actually said, excuse me, could you please turn it off? We're trying to do a show. <laughs> so did they, did that person eventually figure out that it was them? I mean, what, what happened? Well, one of, one of our, our house manager had to come out, go out into the audience and be like, sir, this is, Oh my God. Turn it off. <laughs> That's really amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also have a question because the unexpected guest, at least op- it opens um, and there's stage directions about fog and fog kind of plays an important role in what's going on there. Did you have fog? Like, was there a fog machine that was used? Yes, there was a fog machine that some days worked better than others. And <laughs> there, you know, and we only actually used it in the very first scene when I interned. Got it. And it there actually have I'll, I'll send you a picture. Um, I'll email you a picture. But there is a picture that someone took of me during rehearsal when I was when I first walk into the door. I have a flashlight and there's fog and it's gorgeous. And I don't think we ever were ever actually able to recreate that look for an actual performance. This was in rehearsal, and the fog machine was just like there was a lot of fog. But once we had performances i think it's because the air conditioning was on or whatever but there was there was a draft and so the fog would just sort of get blown and diluted in the air and so it never really collected and got concentrated as well as it should have been so there was fog um and we talk about it a lot in the show Uh, yes it gets gets (laughs) checked name checked a lot and i believe at one point one of the working titles for the play was actually the fog Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Which is which is interesting. Okay. But but the unexpected guest is a great. It's it's a great title. Yeah, and it, it you know barring the there is you know there may be um, a problematic character in it the way they're they're treated. It makes me sad what happens to that character at the very end. I don't know if you remember. I do, and I'm curious. I mean, was that was that in any way you know because other. Um, we've had other guests on who are Agatha Christie theater experts who have put on lots of shows and who have chosen not to put on the unexpected guest because of that depiction and how problematic it is. And it, and it really is. It's, yeah. it's a real problem with that yeah. show. 
I don't get Long Beach Playhouse emails. I mean, when people email Long Beach Playhouse, I don't know. I don't read those emails. But, you know, so if there were any complaints, I didn't hear them or see them. I hadn't heard about any complaints. Uh, but I yeah. do know that the actor who played Jan, the character Jan, yeah. uh, he's a good friend of mine. He, I, I think he had some worries about it. He wanted to do it justice. But the problem is that even if he did it justice, the way it's written, there's not much redeeming about it. Um, oh, and it's just, I mean, and not to even be cryptic in case people don't know what we're talking about, but there's, there's a character who is depicted with some version of, of mental incapacity or mm-hmm. sort of emotional developmental issues. And the issue is that he's portrayed as dangerous because of mm-hmm. those issues. The idea is sort of, well, because he's this way, he is a danger to others and it's just it's very it's a very fuzzy depiction it feels irresponsible it doesn't feel authentic or accurate in any way and i think obviously it's something that in the at the time the play was first produced would have felt less problematic because there was less awareness and as always with christy this isn't a judgment of her but it's just sort of you know it's the notion that you have to you have to think about how these depictions are affecting an audience today or in the moment and right. what the best way is to to address it. And I mean, I would have to say the yeah. only redeeming quality to it is that the way the actor who played him played it, he was just so lovable. Like, I think the audience would see him and, and be like, there's no way he could be violent, you know? There's no way, this is ridiculous, that you would think that that just because he's got some developmental disability that he could be violent. Right. You know? Well, and you know what? I mean, that's, I'm, I'm glad you, you say that because I think there are a lot of tools in an actor's arsenal to use other than the script, other than the literal words, which, and I, and I do, you know, I understand the people who get up in arms about changing Christie's words. And then it's like, well, then just don't do the play, you know, um, right. which is totally valid. I mean, it's totally valid mm-hmm. to not do the play, but if you do, you know, similar to Shakespeare, you know, there, there are lots of renditions of, of Merchant of Venice, which use body language, facial expressions, music, blocking to convey a modern sensibility that does certainly does not exist when it comes to, you know, some of the like anti-Semitic portrayals in that play. So there's a way of of preserving the words and putting on the play, but perhaps mitigating, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of an effect. So it's, that's interesting. It sounds like, you know, maybe they, your friend tried to, to do that, uh, you know, yeah. with his portrayal. So yeah. that's interesting. That's really interesting. All right. So that's our, uh, that was our six of 10. What do we have now in our top five, our top half okay, here? So our top five. So number five and number four actually ended up tying. They were the only tie after all that. So I had to add an extra 0.5 to number four because I had a better experience doing that one. And that's the only thing I can think of. So number five with 41 points is towards zero in which I played superintendent battle. Yeah. Uh, this is, we, we had actually just been the, did this show last year. What I remember most about it um, was that we probably had the most violent scene ever in an Agatha Christie play at the Long Beach Playhouse in that play. And it's when the killer comes back at the end to attack one of the main characters. Mm-hmm. And the director choreographed a fight scene between them that was it was a little bit hard to watch and shocking. I thought it was actually pretty cool because I don't think anyone expected to see this level of violence in Agatha Christie on the main stage. Now, is this between a man and a woman? Yes. 
Yeah. So, and I mean, fast forward a minute or two, if you haven't yet read towards zero, but this is between Neville and Audrey. Yes. Right. Oh, which is, yeah. I mean, I, and I'm thinking, I mean, I know that in the, in my mind, I, I, I'm thinking, yes, he like lunges toward her. And we know that, the, you know, the whole point of what happened, right. Is that he wanted her to suffer and hang, right? right like he's right. just a complete psychopath. What was the nature of the fight? So, I mean, in the in the script, it just basically says he lunges at her, they kind of yeah. scuffled it, and then the police run in. Well, she basically is like listening, she's kind of mourning him being uh, the killer. And yeah. then she's like, li- she puts on a record and she's sitting there and she's listening and he sneaks in from behind her. And the audience at this point is like, oh my God, he's back. And he goes up to her and grabs the back of her head and slams it into the table. Oh, wow. And he, he very cleverly, you know, the actor who played Neville just slammed his head on the hand on the table to mimic the sound of her head butting. So it was very mm-hmm. well done. And then he throws her into a chair and she's just kind of dazed. And he starts going off on this little whatever monologue he has about, you know, you can get away from me, da 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 and then she gets up to fight him back and she he punches her in the in the face and she gets back down on the chair again and then she runs is able to almost get away from him and that's when everyone comes comes in and runs and grabs him and i was when I, when i first saw it i was like oh my god i can't believe and they made it look really real too even though and is that cool. in the script no well i mean it says that they scuffle they scuffle, right? Okay, so none of, but but this was just sort of an interpretation of that and a more Correct. involved version. Wow, yeah, that's that sounds really intense. <laughs> yeah, it was very intense. And there, there's a little disclaimer whenever you walk into the uh, the main stage or the upstairs stage of you know this show contains uh, shots fired. You know, I think this one said this this one includes violence or stage violence, just to let people know as a disclaimer, because it was, it was for many people, it could be very difficult to watch, but I was at the same time kind of impressed that we were able to put this level of fear and um, intensity in an Agatha Christie play. That's Um, really, really interesting. And you know, the reveal of that murderer in Toward Zero is notable in the Christie canon for how crazy he is. Ah. So it doesn't feel actually like that's completely unwarranted. I mean, obviously that's a leap, but again, like if you can, if, if, if you can make an argument for it, if you can make a principled departure like that, or just, or a principled interpretation even of, of what is in the script, like, I, I think that's really interesting. So, huh. Okay. Well, and we talked, a, we talked a lot about uh, murder on the Orient Express, which was also a, a fairly recent uh, experience of yours. So that was number four. I am thrilled that, among the, your top three, two of them were written by Agatha Christie, starting with number three. What is your number three pick? Number three with 42 points is And Then There Were None. Yes. Um, that was the very first play I did at Long Beach Playhouse. And I had already mentioned this, but I played Anthony Marston, who unfortunately, as we all know, is the first to die. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, he is. <laughs> right, be- right before Act One ends. And so I ended up doing, you know, spending the rest of the play helping to, to crew the show, which included like pulling the soldier boys one by one. Off. Oh, that's so cool. That's yeah. a cool job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that script, they were called soldier boys. And so that was really fun because the audience really did not see it happen. Uh, sometimes it would be even in the plain light because the, their attention was directed at something else. Um, so it was pretty cool. That's a really um, fun part of it too. When it's just like, and each time it's like, wait, how, how did that, where did it yeah, go? How did they you do know? that? How did and they the do fact that? that it's on live on stage. That's what makes it so magic. 
that book really, I don't know why I didn't continue reading Agatha Christie Murder Mysteries after Appointment with Death. I do remember Appointment with Death actually scared me. This, the character of Mrs. Boynton was... Well, she's like, terrifying. She's absolutely terrifying, yeah. And that might be why I stopped reading. I'm not really sure. But yeah, I have so many great memories about that show because it was my first show there and everyone in the show was so welcoming to me, uh, to the Playhouse. It's also a great audience pleaser because it really is a whodunit and the fact that everyone is going to die at some point. And I actually was lucky enough to, even though I die first, I had the one of the only two on stage deaths. Um, yeah, it's a very dramatic death. Right. It's a very dramatic it's death. Gotta be I, a lot of fun to do. I actually looked up what it was like to die of, of cyanide. <laughs> and apparently it's very painful. So I, I did a lot of screaming. And the funny thing about that is that, you know, it was all about authenticity. So when people die, they're relaxed position of their eyes is normally a little bit open. And so I decided to die and leave my eyes open. I made myself not blink for the entirety of the rest of the act, which was not that long. The act ends like maybe two minutes later or something like that. But I basically had to keep my eyes open for about two minutes. And there were nights when I would start to tear. Ooh, yeah, that's bold. That's bold of you. <laughs> right. But I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Um, th that was the only play that my mom actually got to see me in. And, and she said later that it was a little bit difficult for her to see me die, which I didn't even think about. When right. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about your number two pick. Number two is, with 43 points is the mysterious affair at styles, which is what I'm doing right now. And I'm not surprised it ranked so high only because I got to play borrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm doing it right now, so it's fresh in my mind. And a lot of my friends who have come seen the, have seen the show have told me that it's one of the most enjoyable Agatha Christie plays they've seen. There's so much humor in it, there were at least the, the stuff that we put put in. Because there is a lot of humor written on the page, but the fun thing that happens when you get to put on a show is that the actors and the director get to put their own spin on things. And the other thing I heard is that the chemistry between me and the the actor who plays Captain Hastings was very good, very solid, and kind of held the show together, or was the the foundation for the show. So that made me really happy. It makes me really proud of this show. I'm I'm really happy with it. And that brings us to number one, <laughs> which I when it happened to add up to 44 points, I was a little bit surprised. I don't know, like I didn't expect it to, to be number one, but it was, which is the mousetrap. Okay. <laughs> it feels and inevitable. Of course, it's the mouse trap. It, it's inevitable, and I'm very sorry, Scott Ratner, for, for <laughs> being number one. But that's where it fell. It's a behemoth for a reason. I don't know. It's just got it's got a lot going for it. And you talked about how you enjoyed. I mean, Christopher Wren must be such a fun character to play. I mean, he's such an incredibly flamboyant character. He has no apology about it. That's just who he is. He's very eccentric and. The play itself is incredibly stageable. I mean, it's written for the stage. It's just one room, basically. And the twist is a very, very good twist, in my opinion. I think it still holds up today for people who have never seen it. The drama really amps up in the second half, you know, with all the suspicions towards each other. And it just it's really fun for the audience to watch. It definitely deserves to be in the number one spot. I have no problem with that. No, Scott Ratner is howling somewhere in Orange County, but that's okay. 
<laughs> and I'm actually just curious because I, I haven't, you know, unfortunately I wasn't able to see your run of Mysterious Affair Styles and I haven't read this version, but it's such a complex puzzle mystery actually. And you kind of already referenced it with like, you know, the coffee stain business. It must be a lot to get through. I mean, was there any simplifying that was done from the book or? So, so I haven't read the book, but the funny thing is one of the, our cast members did. And throughout, throughout our rehearsal process, he kept having these little interject, interjections of, well, actually, you know, in the book, it explains it so much better. And, and <laughs> it's not surprising, you know, it took us a long time as a cast to sort of, put together exactly what happened and how it happened. I think, I don't know if it's because this is her first mystery and she had been a nurse or was still, I'm not sure, was she still a nurse at the time? when She, she was fresh book? from, I mean, she was probably writing it when she was actually a nurse working in, okay. in a dispensary during the First World War. Because it's incredibly academic. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, with the precipitate of the strychnine. Yes. And <laughs> when we explain it, I... As Poirot, and in that last scene where I'm explaining everything that happened, you really have to speak to the audience like they're two. And (laughs) they won't take it as if you're speaking down to them. They're taking it as, okay, this is what's happening. This is what happened. And thank you for being so clear about it. Because you could watch a whole play and still not remember, okay, which one is Mr. Cavendish? Which one's Lawrence? Which one's, you know, John? What's the nurse's name again? Cynthia? And so... Whenever I mention names, I will point to them or gesture to them because the audience needs that. The explanation is so convoluted and so technical that while it can be believable, it's just, it it can go over people's heads so easily. But one little quick anecdote about this is that in my second uh, week of performances, in the first half, I'm interviewing Dorcas and I have this line where we're discussing we're discussing the person that Mrs. Inglethorpe was was arguing with. And everyone seems to think that she was arguing with her husband, Mr. Inglethorpe, when in fact it was Mr. Cavendish, her son, that she was mm-hmm. arguing with. Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed to say the line to Dorcas, and you're quite certain it was Mr. Inglethorpe she was speaking to. And for some reason, this day, Mr. Cavendish came out of my, ma- my mouth. You're quite certain it was Mr. Cavendish she was speaking to. And, you know, she just went on with the, the lines. And as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, I can't fix that. You know, sometimes you have a line club and you can fix it, but I can't fix that. But the simple fact of the matter is that it's so early in the show. By the time you explain what happened, the audience has, has no memory that you had a line club and that you actually did say Mr. Cavendish. Right. It has no bearing. It has no matter. <laughs> right. And, which is the beauty of doing a live play. Right. It's like that. And that is both problematic and something to be celebrated, right? Correct. Like it's exactly it's limitations exactly. of the, of the medium, but also, you know, in, in some ways it's, it gives you freedom. It gives, it's like powerful for you. Absolutely. <laughs> That's really great. Well, this, I mean, that was a great, I think rundown and, and a great way, I think, to just sort of experience those shows from your point of view. So that's exactly what I wanted to get out of that ranking, which was a really fun little exercise. So thank, thank you for doing that. Thank you for loving Agatha Christie enough to do 10 different plays of hers. And like I said, I hope that this just continues because you're obviously on a run here. So why stop at 10? You know, I feel like I'm just incredibly fortunate to have found a little home away from home at the Long Beach Playhouse. Like the fact that they will still cast me in Agatha Christie is just, I feel so incredibly lucky. And the thing though, is that my roles have steadily gotten bigger. And now that I've played Barrow, I don't know where to go next. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> That's true. That might be the crowning achievement. <laughs> you know, well, every, like you said, every you just... subsequent year, I've, I've always thought, maybe this is the year that they don't cast me. <laughs> and I'd be okay with that. And, you know, maybe they can... I mean, it's great that there's obviously a commitment to murder mystery theater there because obviously there yeah. are other shows even beyond Christie. So, you know, not that I'm, not that I'm advising that they leave the Christie fold. Like I said, there's still many <laughs> more titles to go, but um, I mean, people love Agatha Christie, even if they hate her, they can't argue that she brings in the people. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, this is really funny, but I close out almost every interview that I do on the podcast by forcing my guests to answer uh, the age-old conundrum when it comes to Agatha Christie, Poirot or Marple. I think this has never been an easier question for a guest than I suspect it is for you now, given that you are playing Poirot currently. But who's it going to be, Poirot or Marple, Sam? I mean, I have to say, I've I've only read two of her books and only one was a Poirot. And so... I've got to pick Barrow. I mean, he's, as an actor, I think he's more fun to play. A lot more fun to play. I think Miss Marple, she's incredibly intelligent and intuitive. I obviously ha- have no idea what it's like to play Miss Marple. Oddly enough, the woman who played Miss Marple in The Murders announced that I did, she is playing Miss Cavendish in The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Ah, okay. And I know she had a ball playing Miss Marple, but I have to say Hercule Poirot especially since he is so much better represented in Agatha Christie theater. (laughs) This is very true. Yes. Very, very true. Clearly she was, I mean, Agatha Christie very famously uh, did not like depicting Poirot herself. So most of her, her, her adaptations actually, she would excise Poirot out of them, which that's a really, it's it's an easy shorthand for trying to figure out whether or not Agatha Christie herself wrote the play. If it's based on a Poirot novel and Poirot isn't in it, then she probably wrote it. If Poirot is in it, then she definitely didn't write it. (laughs) Or she wrote him out. Yeah, because she always wrote him out. So, you know, she didn't necessarily enjoy him, I think, in the theatrical domain, but she also certainly did not put Miss Marple there. And during her lifetime, there were other people. There's actually a, there's also an adaptation of the murder at the Vicarage that was Mm. done. I want to say either in the forties or the fifties. So while she was writing plays and she allowed that to be licensed out and, and that had some successful runs. So I, even though I'm a Marpleite, I accept your answer. I think that makes a lot of sense given your experience of Agatha Christie. You're very particular and expansive, <laughs> particular in one way and expansive in another experience of Agatha Christie. This has just been such a delight. And I will include a link to the Long Beach Playhouse in the notes to this episode for anyone who's interested. If you're in the area, obviously it is a fantastic community playhouse and uh, one with a commitment to Christie and Mysteries, which is something to celebrate. Absolutely. Thank you you so much for coming on, Sam. Thank you so much, Kepper. It was a great time. Thank you again so much to Sam Tang, Lee Samuel Tang, actor extraordinaire. That was so much fun. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if you'd like to see a collage of all of Sam's appearances in these various Christie roles, head on over to the podcast's Twitter account at All About the Dame or its Instagram account at All About Agatha. For next week's episode, I am going to be covering an original short story by Agatha Christie. Look at that. And I'm actually going to be bringing back one of my recent co-hosts, Sarah Hinlicky wilson who covered Star Over Bethlehem with me, we will be discussing The Island, which is the final story in Agatha Christie's Star Over Bethlehem and Other Stories book collection. 
So it's going to get a little personal, a little religious, as we discuss another of those stories in that curious little collection. I'm very much looking forward to that. You can, of course, email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And if you would like more All About Agatha content, you could always become a Patreon subscriber. I've included a link to Patreon in the notes to this episode. I encourage everyone to buy my debut mystery novel, The Busybody. I think you've probably heard me mention that once or twice on this podcast. You can click on the links I've provided in the show notes to purchase the book in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia and New Zealand. Please do give the podcast a rating and or a review if you haven't yet done so. I've gotten a couple of those trickling in, and we really are close to reaching 1,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I still really want that to happen. So help me out if you haven't yet, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.